Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So, quick summary of last week, and then we'll, we'll discuss judgment a little bit. So last week we talked about death. And if you were here, what were some of the key points we made? Those four notes. Hmm? Those four notes. Yeah, the DSE ray. We talked about that. And the, uh, the Requiem Mass and Day of Judgment, Day of Wrath, and how... The idea of death and the impending doom, you know, has pervaded our culture, but we've kind of lost the religiosity of it. What were some of the other points? Physical death, spiritual death. Physical death, spiritual death. And that will be obviously big as we talk about judgment. But the idea that our bodies die, and we also talk about a spiritual death, an eternal death, um, the separation of he who is life, which is God. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a little more detail. Sin. Sin, yeah. Death being a result of sin. And so the opposite of sin is, is holiness, and that reward is life. Sin brings death, holiness brings life, or, or God brings life. So when we t- think about judgment, um, before we jump in, I want to kind of recognize where people are at. So if I say judgment, give me your phrases that come to mind. Just first thing, talking, thinking about the last judgment, you know. Scary. We have an advocate. We have an advocate, yeah. Phrase in the liturgy and in the scriptures. What else comes to mind? Uncovering. Uncovering. What images come to mind? Book of life. Book of life, yeah. A book being opened. What else? What's the setting usually? Do you ever think of a setting? Courtroom. Oh, yeah. 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 Everyone thinks of a courtroom, right? Somebody's, some, somebody's on the throne, right? We're, we're on the floor. With a gavel. With a gavel. Okay, there we go. Do you think of fire? Does anybody think of fire? There's a big one from Tom and Jerry. I mean, you know, you got Satan up there with the horns and the pounding on the thing. You know? Oh, interesting. So and Satan has the gavel in on that one. Yeah, Satan has a gavel in Tom and Jerry. Okay. And it's just like, no. That's funny. Yeah, so the, this image of, you know, the final judgment, you know, people pointing left, right, you know, kind of these images of Scripture that we've co-opted and, and transformed a little bit. Becky said scary. I think for a lot of us it does bring a sense of, of fear. I mean, why does it bring fear? Just put it bluntly. Because we've done bad things. Because we've done a lot of bad things, right? Yeah. So this this idea of this uncovering of our... Our deeds being made known, even though intellectually we may say, yeah, God knows everything. This idea that it's finally going to be read back to us. Or some people even talk about it like, you, you will see your life played out on the big screen for everyone to watch. I mean, that, that's terrifying, right? So I think we bring some fear, some trepidation, some worry to the judgment scene. What we're going to do tonight, hopefully, is rework that and say there's a place for fear. But there's also not. We have a confidence, but we also have a call to action. Um, we have both of those at the same time, right? So 
the worry that we have is not have anything to do with what side are we going to be on. We'll talk about the confidence we have there. But then we'll also talk about why do we, why do we even get judged in the first place? Um, we always talk about our, our life is in Christ, and we'll, and we'll look at you know, the hope we have in Jesus Christ, so why do we still get judged, and what's the purpose of that? The original sin. Yeah, so we talk about baptism, though, cleansing us from original sin. Okay, well then, what's the, so we'll, we'll, we'll try to address all sorts of, of tangential questions, but we're going to start with Scripture and just look at Revelation 20 for a second. Um, we'll look at Daniel 7 for a second. We will look at um, Mark 2 for a second, but we'll, we'll start with Revelation 20. Um, we're talking about judgment. Let's start with Revelation. Let's start with, with, with the book. So, I'm going to read a couple verses here, um, and this, this is kind of the passage that everyone points to. This is from Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and the one who sat on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's the, there's the courtroom scene, there's the fire, there's the throne, there's the left and right, there's death and Hades being thrown. I mean, we, we got the whole thing there. Um, I want us to note a couple of things. Revelation, uh, verse 11, excuse me. The first, the first verse talking about the earth and the heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. So we're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ right here. Okay, so how many judgments are there going to be? Two. Two. What are they? Particular and general. It's not in the scriptures. It's just the words that we give to them. Why do we speak of two judgments? Well, from God's perspective, it's one judgment, right? We don't get judged twice, two different ways. But when do we experience our first judgment? When we die. Yeah. When we die and our body and soul are removed, we experience that we call it a particular judgment. That's what the church has always called it. Why particular? Because it's only me. It's, it's, my, it's my judgment. But then we have the second coming of Christ, right? That's a little bit more broad. Um, a, a helpful way to think of it maybe is you get your, your particular judgment. Here are the things, you know, let's just put it bluntly. Here's what you did wrong. At the general judgment, you start seeing, here's what we have done wrong. Here's, here's how my actions affected John, who affected Sally, who affected Dwayne. Here's how all of this is kind of seen together. And then we also get scenes in the scriptures of um, Jesus bringing or regathering all of the nations together. Uh, we get death in Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. That all happens at the, at the general judgment, at the second coming, the day of the Lord. There's ten different words that the, the scripture writers use for it. But that is is broader than just left or right, your individual soul. We experience that too, right? That is where we will stand before the throne. But upon our death, there's, there's two directions we are going, right? And those are not chosen for us. We choose that for ourselves. And that is part of the, 
the judgment. What have you chosen for yourselves? There's a line on the ground. Have you, have you been loyal or faithful to Jesus Christ, or have you turned your back on him? I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the easiest way to put the judgment scene. So, heaven and earth are fleeing from his presence. What, does, what happens as part of the, the second coming with heaven and earth? Do they remain the same? No, new heaven and a new earth. That's the phrase we hear. They are recreated also. So heaven and earth are fleeing because there is no uh, boundary between us and God anymore. What do heaven and earth function as? They function as separation between humanity and God. We have the earth, the earthlings, and we have the heaven, the heavenly beings. There's a separation there. Heaven and earth are fleeing from his presence because all has been brought into one. There's nowhere to hide is, is kind of the author's point. You don't you don't hide from judgment. This is, this is everyone. Every, everything, every person, every creature, it's all here, including death and Hades. And then we see, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. So we have the book of life. That's the other book that was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. Yes, Becky. Something that's not clear to me is, say we die and death is the separation of body and soul. Correct. What happens to our souls between that first particular judgment and the general judgment? Mm-hmm. Because it could be millennia. We will, yeah. We'll keep in mind on that for tradition, but we'll talk about the intermediate state, okay. what happens there. But, but you're right in recognizing there's something we have to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. What happens to your soul between the particular judgment and general judgment? The church, the church has, has given thought to that, but you're right, there's... I mean, if you're outside of time, it could happen back to back. But for us time-bound beings, I mean, we've got to deal with something here. So good question. Keep it in mind. Um, the books, uh, the church has called these the book of deeds or the book of Mary. It's, it's, it's what you did. So you are judged according to your work. So if you're thinking about judgment, we kind of have a couple different bullet points written on the board. All are judged. You're judged according to your works. And all of these are going to be important, and then we're going to try to put them all together. And then another book was opened, the book of life. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So you're judged according to your works, but your eternal destiny is according to the book of life, right? See what's happening there? Judged according to works, but whether or not you get thrown into the lake of fire, it's not on the book of merit, it's, it's the book of life. So there's a distinction there. And then we see death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Um, They might be capitalized in your scripture. It's trying to personify death and Hades. Um, You actually see death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. It's as if, you know, death has has taken all the people who have died. And at the end of time, Jesus stands before him and says, Give up all of your dead. They are now facing their ultimate judgment, and you do not have any power anymore. And that's why death is thrown into the lake of fire. So, particular judgment, your individual soul. General judgment, all of creation. All of creation is being renewed, recreated, judged. Death itself is being overthrown. Paul says death is the last enemy to be defeated at the end of time. So we get all of these bullet points about judgment. And then we also see... This is the second death, the lake of fire. And this is where we get this idea of this, this ultimate judgment um, you know, that, that, is, that is at the end of time that we all have a place in. Okay, so 
If you think about it for a second, we have a, a mystery here, the mystery of salvation. So people are judged by their deeds, for the records are kept until the last judgment, right? Does that make sense to everyone? It's written in the book. You have to answer for them. But what is salvation? What does the scripture tell us that salvation is? Is it something that we earn? No, no Paul says it is a free gift given to all who want it. I mean, we, we receive the gift, we, we claim it, but it's, it's a gift. There's no conditions. There's nothing we can do to merit it. So salvation is a free gift offered to all with no conditions. We are ultimately responsible for what we do. And yet God is ultimately responsible for our salvation. So what is judgment? Why are we judged? Why do we have to answer for the things we have done? I'm going to try to use a couple of analogies, um, and then we're going to look at Daniel 7 for a second, and then move on to the intermediate state. But um, this is an analogy Father Steve and I have used uh, many, many times. But if you are, um, what's, what's a hobby somebody, some of y'all do? What's a hobby you have? Quilt. Quilt. Okay. Yeah. Sewing. Okay. You, you may be pretty good at it, right? Have you ever, did you have like a grandma who taught you how to do it or do you have anybody who taught you? I just kind of, yeah, I had some. Friends. Have you ever seen somebody's work and thought that is outstanding and you feel a little underwhelmed, like in your own ability? You see somebody's work and you say, I don't think I could do that. You feel judged in a sense, like... My stitching is, I don't know, sewing that well, but my stitching isn't as uniform as that, or that pattern is very intricate. I don't, I don't think I could do that. Um, if you've ever played a sport before, I always, I always use this one for the youth. You think you're good at basketball, what if you met Michael Jordan or, or Kobe Bryant? You're like, man, I'm not that good. You know, you, you lose 11 to 0 or whatever to Kobe Bryant in one-on-one, you all of a sudden feel judged a little bit. Or, more, give it a moral character. Maybe you feel like, doing pretty good you know I'm a pretty good person and then maybe you come you encounter someone who you know is 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 going to prayer seven days a week at 5 a.m and volunteer they do all this stuff and all of a sudden you're like oh my goodness I don't that's a that's a little much and you all of a sudden feel a little unworthy you feel that that judgment that's an internal judgment right that's a self-judgment but that, that's kind of how this works we come face to face with God who has offered us salvation and yet we all of a sudden recognize all the ways that we fell short, right? God calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. And immediately we think, how often have I been mean to my neighbor? God tells us the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. And we start realizing, how often have I been abrasive? God tells us it's, it's patience. And we think, how often do I act impatient? We, we experience that self-judgment. Okay, here, here's another analogy. Um, this is the courtroom one with the line in the sand and, you know, those on my left, I say, enter into the lake of fire. Those on my right, enter into the pasture. The nature of Jesus Christ, he is not drawing a line in between us. He is not looking, okay, y'all over here, y'all over here. I'm going to draw a line in the middle. No, but by his nature, there is a line in front. Um, and, and we choose where to stand on that. Um, you can't... You can't help but react to the person of Jesus Christ. That's, that's another way of, of understanding this. Jesus, by his nature, is perfect love. He, he demands something of us. When we talk about God, God demands something. Worship, you know, is, is how we phrase it. But when you, when you come face to face with a creator who has created you, there's an obligation there 
to, to give him something, to give him reverence, adoration, worship. Or you can choose to say, I don't want to do that. So I, I turn my back on that. Um, here's, another, here's another analogy. This is from um, the marriage rite. And marriage is a, is a good analogy for this. So in the BCP, you know, in, in, the, in the marriage rite, there's a prayer right before the celebrant begins the ministry of the word. So they've already, um, you know, declaration of consent, and they've already done all this. They've already um, made your vows. Will you love him, comfort him, honor him, and keep him in sickness and in health, forsaken all others, I will. And then here's this prayer. O gracious and ever-living God, you have created us male and female in your image. Look mercifully upon this man and this woman who come to you seeking your blessing and assist them with your grace that with true fidelity and steadfast love they may honor and keep the promises and vows they make. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you, one God forever and ever. With true fidelity and steadfast love they may honor and keep the promises and vows they make. If you are married or have been married, you make vows to someone, right? If you, you know, hide money from them or cheat on them, does it mean you're not married anymore? No. But is it living into the vows that you made? No. How do you demonstrate your vow? By acting according to the things that you vowed to do. By acting according to that covenant relationship. So when we, when we make our relationship with God, that is a, that is a covenant we are vowing to give him what he is due, to give him justice. And when we fall short of that, is it risking eternal damnation? No, but we are obligated to respond to that. I mean, if you make a mistake in your marriage vows, you don't get to pretend like it never happened, right? There's an effect there. There's a damage in that relationship, and you've got to address it. It's the same with our relationship with God. We make a mistake. We, you know, stumble. God does not say, well, I'm done with you forever now. No, but there's a damage there. Some, some atonement needs to happen. How do we do that? Well, we confess and we receive absolution. Absolutely. But that is a cleansing of the guilt. There's still the pain that has happened. We still carry the scars of our sins with us. Does that make sense? And you can, you can apologize and your spouse can, can truly forgive you. But is it the exact same yet? No, it's going to take some time to mend those wounds, to rebuild the trust, to rebuild that covenant relationship and kind of restore you back to your fullness. It's the same with our relationship with God. There is that process of removing the guilt that happens instantaneously, but undoing the damage that takes some time, that takes some purification, that takes some commitment and restoration. Um, another, another helpful way trying to go through all sorts of analogies or, or phrases that might help you grasp this concept is in Hebrews, um, the Hall of Faith chapter. Um, that's kind of what it gets colloquially called. But you, you go through Adam, and we've talked about this before, Adam and Noah. All of them get heralded as these examples of fidelity, but none of them were perfect. I mean, Moses murdered someone. Um, David has, has a man killed so he can sleep with his wife and take her to be his own. I mean, these are imperfect examples. But why are they heralded as examples of faith? Because they were loyal. In the midst of their mistakes, in the midst of their doubt, their end focus was the same. They were focused on trying to be loyal to God. And yeah, they stumble, but they never, they never get off the road. They never get off of the path to, to God. 
Is that, is that helpful? Um, you're still on the road, you stumble, but you never get off the road. You might lie down for a second and cry, and it might take some time for you to actually stand back up and take that next step, but you never get off the road in the first place. Um, that believing loyalty, that example of fidelity, is, is helpful context for judgment. Because when we think about, we answer for the deeds that we have done, yes, but where, where is our ultimate goal to be found? Where is the assurance of that? Well, it's our loyalty. It's our fidelity. What's the end goal of your life? Have you made mistakes? Yeah, we all have. And we have to mend those mistakes. But what is your end goal? The, the judgment, um, a lot of the early Christian writers always talk about it as if it's going to be this um, telling you something you knew deep down all along. You're going to get there and you're going to say, yeah, yeah, I knew that. That's going to either be good news or, or bad news for you. But it's never going to be a surprise because deep down we know where our loyalty lies. Yes, we make mistakes. Um, but when we talk about like the worry and fear we bring into judgment, that's where there shouldn't be worry because deep down you know where your loyalty lies. You know who you are trying to be faithful to. Do you make mistakes? Yeah, but in your heart of hearts, you, you know where your loyalty is aimed at. Okay. We've got, we've got an image in Revelation, um, and we're going to try to add to it by thinking about specifically Christ as our judge. So Revelation talks about the person on the throne. And I've already said it, but Christ is, is our judge. Um, we say it in the Creed, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is part of the second coming in Advent that we talk about. But why is Jesus Christ the one judging us? Specifically, not the Father, not the Holy Spirit, um, not an angel. We do have images of angels participating in this, but the person on the throne pronouncing the judgment is Jesus Christ. Why does it make sense for it to be Jesus? He's the one that died on the cross. For our sins. For our sins. So there's a, there's a relationship there. Why else? His mother was human and his father was God. Yeah, which means he is what? God. Yeah, he is God and human. So he is one of us, right? The Father does not have a body. The Spirit does not have a body. How do we sin? With our body and mind and, and heart and with our senses. I mean, that is how we experience and make meaning in the world. So it's not as if, and this is, this is important because we also talk about Christ as our advocate. When you said um, he is the judge and the advocate, he's kind of doing both at the same time and presenting us to the Father. But, but this is assurance for us because we're not being judged by someone who has no idea um it's someone who is able to say i know how hard it was i know those temptations are difficult i know what it feels like to suffer i know what it feels like to lose a friend i know what it is like to be human the highs and the lows but he emerged through it victorious perfect so he is he is able to resonate with us he is not standing there saying you know come on you know, couldn't you have done better? And we're saying, you don't know what it's like. No, he knows exactly what it's like. He is one of us, um, and he died for our sins. He is the, the one that is actually saving us from the first place, from this judgment. He is our hope in the midst of that judgment. So I want to turn for a second to Mark 2 and then Daniel 7. And um, Mark 2 is in the midst of Jesus healing the paralytic. And this is where he heals him and he forgives his sins. And he kind of does both at the same time. And it creates, it creates a lot of uproar among the scribes and the Pharisees um, who are present. 
But this is Mark 2, verses 9 through 11. Which is easier to say to the, to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now the people say, We have never seen anything like this before. Have they seen a healing before? Yeah. There was all sorts of go to this pool and receive healing. And and have they seen probably crazy people saying your sins are forgiven? Yeah. But what's what's unique in this passage? It's the it's the title that Jesus claims for himself. Stand up, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, if you look in your Bible, there's a good chance that this phrase is capitalized. On a first reading, you may think, yeah, it's, it's a human. He's a son of man. That's the phrase we use. He's a, he's a human. But it's a specific wording that is a judgment scene. Um, Jesus is saying, I am here as the judge, and I have authority to forgive sins. I mean, that is why the people say, We've never seen anything like this before. And he's making a reference to Daniel 7. So I'm going to flip there for a second. Now, Daniel 7 and Revelation are two apocalyptic books. Best said at the beginning, unfolding. That's all apocalypse means. We think it means like telling the future in a sense, but all it means is um, uncovering, unfolding. So when we talk about telling the future, it's, it's unfolding the mystery of the future. But it could be unfolding the mystery of the present or, or the past. I mean, apocalypse is this unveiling of the hidden mysteries. Daniel is full of these apocalyptic visions. And Daniel 7 gives um, some context for this son of man narrative. So this is, you'll notice, it's another courtroom scene. And the context is there are four beasts. So they represent the four winds. They're supposed to represent the nations of the world. And they have been assembled in this courtroom and basically they say, spit up everything you have devoured. So all the, all the power and people and nations and things that you've taken for yourself, give it up. Literally throw it up. And then they stand trial before the Ancient of Days on the throne. So here's what it's saying. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So we have very obvious parallels to Revelation 20. Um, They're describing this similar thing. Books are being opened. The beasts, death and Hades in Revelation's case, in Daniel 7, it's these four beasts of the four winds, are being brought before the throne. And here we have the Ancient One taking his place on the throne. But notice what it says here. As I watched, the beast was put to death, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and the glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. 
So what happens in this courtroom scene? We have the ancient one. It's supposed to be the father. I mean, he's described as white hair. Godfather does not have a body, but that's the, that's the image that Daniel sees. And who is brought to him? One like a son of man. This human figure, and he is the one who is now given the power to judge. And he is actually given dominion over the beast of all the other nations. I mean, this is a, this is a second coming scene. This is a general judgment scene when all the nations are regathered together. This is a day of the Lord scene, whatever you want to call it. But what it's saying is that this human figure is actually given the authority to judge. Fast forward thousands of years, Jesus shows up and says, you remember that passage in Daniel 7? I'm the son of man and I'm here to forgive sins and I have authority to make judgments. That, that makes people step back for a second because now they're thinking, gosh, I remember that Daniel 7 scene. It was a little scary. There's, there's scenes of fire. There's this idea that you know, judgments are being pronounced on all the nations. And this person standing in front of me is saying, he's actually the one with that authority. I mean, we just talked about Christ the King Sunday. That's the final fulfillment of this, right? Is that Jesus regathers all the nations, judges, meaning he purifies the world. The evil is removed and the good remains. And then what? He reigns forever and ever and ever. His dominion shall never pass away. The, the general judgment, the last judgment, the final judgment, whatever you want to call it, that is preserving the future. That is a way of saying the evil has gone away now and now there is no more opportunity for sin or evil. Does that make sense? The, the general judgment is that final seal. What remains is pure and good and the Lord will reign over it forever and ever. That's why there will not be any weeping or gnashing of teeth. That's why the, the visions that we get of Revelation are there is no more crying, there's happiness and joy, there's no more a sun. We get even that, that description. Why? Because the light of the world is here with us on the throne and He is the only light we need. There's no need for the separation of heaven and earth because we are one with God. I mean, all of these are kind of getting at this idea that necessitates judgment. You can't be unified with God if you are still clinging on to sin, right? That has to be dealt with. That has to be dispensed. That has to be done away with before you can turn your focus full, fully on, on God. So, Mark 2, Jesus claims that title for himself. Daniel 7, that's really what he's talking about. Um, John 5, Jesus, uh, just for your own edification, we don't, we don't need to turn there, but that's where Jesus kind of defends why has he begin, been given authority to judge? Why is he the Son of Man? And he talks about the Father and I are one. It's not as if the Father would have judged this way, but God the Son judges this way. No, they, they have the same will. They have the same outlook. But why does the Son judge? Because He's one of us. Because He's the one who also steps in and is our advocate. So here's a short summary of how, how judgment works for our salvation. We stand before the Ancient One, the Father, right? That's the Daniel 7 imagery. We're not going to pass this test. We have nothing to offer the Father. Um, the psalmist says all of our works are like dirt, filthy rags before the Father. So we stand there with, with empty arms, stained by sin, and we have nothing to offer. And Jesus Christ has now been put, placed in, in our midst. In between us and the Father, Jesus Christ stands there and He says, I'm going to be your judge and so that you may have eternal life, I'm going to cover you. I'm going to cleanse you. So that when we turn then and present ourselves or are presented before the Father, who does the Father see? 
He doesn't see Luke. He sees Jesus. He sees his perfect son covering us and making us new. And that is why we pass the test, not because of anything we've done or deserved, but because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. So that's the short answer of salvation and and judgment. Okay, but we have to deal with something, right? And and here we're going to move on to tradition. What do we still have to deal with? What did we what did what did Becky mention earlier? That time. Yeah, that time. And also the, the stains of our sin, right? The the effects of our sin. So think about it this way. You are baptized, and that removes the stain of original sin. That brings you into into grace. And then what happens? <coughs> what? We dirty it up. Yeah, and then we dirty it up. We sin again. So we go to confession, right? We, we, we confess every Sunday, or you do private confession. The outcome is the same. We are given assurance of forgiveness. And if you've ever been to private confession, what does the priest do? Absolve. Absolve, and then what? What they should do? Give you a penance. Give you a penance. Yeah. But you've already been absolved, right? What's the penance for? Make things right. It's minting the wounds, right? So you are, you are given absolution. That is a declaration that you are not guilty anymore. The, the, the stain has been removed, but the, but the scar remains. The penance is a way to mend that relationship. Use the marriage analogy. You, you, know, you do something to harm your marital relationship. The forgiveness is the absolution. I forgive you. It's as if it doesn't happen. But it still happened, right? That wound remains. The penance is, is the, the steps that you take to fulfill that relationship again. So on this side of the grave, that's the kind of the analogy we get. We, go to, we receive absolution and we do our penance. But what are we still in? We're still in a sick world. And what do we do continuously? We always fall. We always fall. We might not even make a, a perfect confession. I mean, these are, these are our ways of living into our vows and our covenant relationship with God. So what happens? We die. Our body is, is placed into the ground and our soul remains. And what do we carry with it? Those wounds. What is our, what is our assurance? Our faith in Christ. Our faith in Christ. Our end goal is not in doubt. But what do we, what do we carry with us upon death? Death is not the end of our life, right? We, we say in the, in the funeral, right, our, our existence is not ended, but life is changed in death. Our bodies decay, our soul lives on, and what do we do? We await for the resurrection of the dead. That is what happens in the general judgment. The, the bodies are resurrected and they're reunited with the souls and, and they are perfected for the faithful, right? They are, they are made perfect. So we still have those wounds. So here's where church tradition has given all sorts of names. The intermediate state purgatory, um, the in-between, whatever you want to call it. It's trying to deal with what happens between the particular judgment, because the particular judgment and the general judgment are not at odds with one another. It's as if saying the particular judgment, as soon as you die, is saying, which gate are you walking through? And you walk through the gate, and then there's a huge road ahead of you. And you're still awaiting the final fulfillment, right? You don't experience the final fulfillment on your particular judgment, right? The world is still needs to be recreated. Justice and evil still, justice still needs to prevail. Evil still needs to be destroyed. Death still needs to be destroyed. So what now? Well, you are still on a path toward God. What is the goal of the Christian life? 
Heaven, yes, which is where? Union with God. It is eternal bliss. It is righteousness. It is, um, the Eastern fathers would say, theosis. It's being made like God. Well, we can't be like God if we are still imperfect, if we still carry the scars of our sins. There's a process to be made here. We've received the rubber stamp of approval. I mean, that, that's, that's one way of saying, that's your ticket to that gate. That is your loyalty in Jesus Christ. That's the work Jesus Christ has done. We don't do anything to deserve that. Your ticket to that gate to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. But everything you've done in this life and all the wounds that you carry, they still have to be dealt with. And that is why the church has said that there has to be some sort of purification, some sort of purgation. I mean, we get all these fire images in the judgment scenes. Why fire? It's cleansing. It's purifying. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the most basic elements, right? It is, at, its, at its very nature, it is pure cleanliness, right? It, I mean, literally it kills bacteria. It, it removes impurities from metals. I mean, it is a tool by which things are purified. So there's a sense at which a lot of the early Christian writers speak of the fire of judgment and the fire of bliss as the same, the same fire. I mean, we read in the scriptures, there is no place that God's love has not reached. We choose whether or not that that is a warm embrace or a cruel torture, right? I mean, it's not as if God is offering a different version of himself to those who have rejected him. No, they reject the same God that we accept. It's, it's the same God. It's the same love. And we either view that as this sort of cleansing purification or we view it as punishment. I mean, that's one way to understand it. Different locations, but somehow the same God. Um, that, is, that is a helpful way to say, well, why does God punish the wicked? He's not inflicting punishment. As if somehow, you know, he sits there and gets excited about punishing them because they didn't do what he wanted. No, we bring that on ourselves. Um, we turn our backs on God, and what is God? God is life. God is happiness. God is bliss. So when we turn our backs on Him, we experience wrath and torment and death, the eternal death. We bring all that on ourselves. So the intermediate state, we are initially judged after our death. That's a particular judgment. But we wait until the second coming. Um, If we are loyal to God, but we still obviously make mistakes, how then are we perfected? We have to be wholly righteous. If you look at uh, Revelation 21, um, verse... Oh, now I'm not, not going to remember it. I think it's verse 7. Um, it is not verse 7. But there, there's a verse in uh, Revelation 21 where it says, um, nothing that is imperfect may enter, meaning may enter this, this heavenly scene. To be with God has to be perfection. God is perfect love. There's no room for hate. And, and it's almost the sense that as you draw closer to God's perfect love in that flame, that all the impurities have to be burned off. Um, The writer of Hebrews phrases it as, let us cast aside the sins that cling to us and hinder our ability to run toward God. It's almost as if as you are running toward God, toward that fiery love, that all the impurities start shedding. They start falling off of you. As you get closer to that heat source, you, you have to shed them because what has to be left at the end? It's righteousness. It's perfect righteousness, perfect love, in everything you have to offer unto God, and no chance of turning back. So um, that's, that's where we get this idea of, of purgatory. Now, 
If you look in the back of the BCP, for example, um, you look at the 39 Articles of Religion, there is one that says of the Romish doctrine of purgatory, and it basically says the Romish doctrine of purgatory is repugnant and a thing to be wholly rejected. It is repugnant to Scripture, and we want basically nothing to do with it. Okay, so we still have this intermediate state to deal with, right? So what are they actually critiquing? Well, what ends up happening, and, and this is a lot of the Reformation, is critiquing abuses of these beliefs or of these doctrines. Um, it's not as if, you know, the Anglicans are saying this whole intermediate state, this, this question that we have to resolve, uh, we're not going to deal with it anymore. We just think the Romans got it wrong. No, they're saying that there's this abuse that has taken place. Here's one example. Thomas More, Roman Catholic, talks about purgatory, and in one instance he says that the sufferings of purgatory are so bad that you forget who God really is. And the Anglicans say, what's the point of that? Purgatory is supposed to be drawing our attention closer and closer to God. Purgatory is not a punishment drawing us further away from God and drawing our mind away. I mean, it's the same pathway. We're all on the same gate. We've, we've gone through the, the initial gate because of the work of Jesus Christ. So they are critiquing these abuses. Um, they are not critiquing the idea that some type of intermediate state has to happen. Here's proof. C.S. Lewis writes on purgatory by name. One of the most prominent Anglicans that we can think of. I mean, he, he talks about purgatory. And what he says is really interesting, and I think it's a helpful way for us to realize Purgatory is not something to be feared. Um, these, these characters of it that we get are, are perhaps to be discarded, and maybe we emerge with a view of it that is actually helpful in our spiritual life. So this is what C.S. Lewis says. Our souls demand purgatory, don't they? This is in Letters to Malcolm. It's these fictional letters that he writes after a friend dies. Would it not break the heart if God said to us, It is true, my son, that your breast smells and that your rags drip with mud and slime. But we are charitable here, and no one will upbraid you with these things, nor draw away from you. Enter into joy. Should we not reply, with submission, sir, and if there is no objection, I'd rather be cleaned first. It may hurt, you know, even so, sir, I'd rather be cleaned. I assume that the process of purification will normally involve suffering, partly from tradition, partly because most real good that has ever been done to me in this life has involved it. But I don't think suffering is the purpose of the purgation. I can well believe that people neither much worse nor much better than I will suffer less than I or more. No nonsense about merit. The treatment given will be the one required, whether it hurts little or hurts much. So what C.S. Lewis is saying is this, this picture that you are brought into this heavenly banquet with God the Father. And let's say you look down and you say, I'm covered in mud and slime. And God says, don't worry about it. What are you going to say? No, I'm quite uncomfortable in these muddy clothes. You deserve better. Can I please go change first? That's why C.S. Lewis is saying our, our souls demand it, don't they? Doesn't it make sense? If you're going to present yourself before, don't you want to be clean? In another instance, he kind of compares it to like a tooth decay. You, you want it taken out and you want the antiseptic put in. Does it hurt? Absolutely. But not worse than having the rotten tooth. Does the cleansing hurt? Yeah, but it's what we want. We want to offer God our very best. We want to present to Him perfection. So this, this idea of this intermediate state, however we want to deal with it, whether we call it purgatory like C.S. Lewis did, whether you call it the intermediate state because the purgatory word makes you uncomfortable, whatever you do, the point is still the same. 
in the process of our life and journey towards God, as we await the general judgment, cleansing has to happen because we want to present ourselves as perfect before God. That is the Christian life, to be unified with God, and that can't happen unless there's perfect righteousness. So the absolution, the hope we have in Jesus Christ, that's the ticket, that's the rubber stamp, and there's no reason to doubt it. If you are loyal, if your end goal is clear, and deep down you know where that is, we don't have anything to fear in the judgment. And we definitely don't have anything to fear in purgatory, because as Lewis says, the treatment given will be the one required, and we'll accept it joyfully. Because it's, it's changing our dirty clothes. It's, it's removing that rotten tooth. It's, it's a joy to make ourselves well so that we can enjoy bliss with the Father. Okay, we've got 15 minutes left. I'll take the last five um, as we move to reason and just talk for a second about um, something called antinomianism. So antinomianism, anti, which means against, nomi, nomos um, is a Greek word meaning law. So antinomianism was this uh, doctrine that came about in the 16th and 17th century um, forcefully. And it basically said, okay, grace abounds. It kind of rejected any type of purgatory. And so it said, God's going to forgive us. We can't even do anything to earn it. So do whatever you want. And then go ask for forgiveness. Who cares? If we actually take Paul's word seriously, that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, and it's always Jesus, and all we have to do is accept it. Well, accept it, and then have a fun life. That was antinomianism. Um, if you hear uh, some people say it, they'll say, oh yeah, all the Protestants, they believe in justification by faith alone. They're all antinomianists. Most Protestant groups have declared this a heresy. Um, almost every single one. Nobody actually takes this seriously. Um, very few people do. But, but the, it was taken seriously in the 17th century. But there's, there's a sense at which we have to use this to kind of correct our understanding about what the Christian life is. We see that and we think, well, that's, that's kind of silly. That's a bit extreme. I'm not going to just show up to church on Sunday and run and do whatever I want. But we kind of do sometimes, don't we? We, we kind of do. We kind of say, well, grace is there. It'll be fine. I'm going to do whatever I want. So this is where I think we, we've taken the worry out of the judgment. But here's where the, the judgment should compel us to a virtuous life. Because we are not antinomianists. Um, this is Paul in Romans 6. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized unto his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So what Paul is saying is, yeah, the grace is here for a reason, so that you can have new life, so that you can walk in newness of life. Responsibility for sins after baptism exist. We are responsible for what we do, and we will answer for them one day. Remember what we talked about? There's the book of life. That's what gate you're going into. That's what path you're going to be on. Then there's the book of deeds. You've got to answer for everything you've done. Why? Is it because God is saying, now why did you do this? No. He knows why you did it, because you weren't trusting totally in Him, or in His mercy, or in His love. We have to answer for it, because we are aware of, here's where I rejected God. And that caused me pain. 
especially when I look back on it, when I'm looking at him face to face, when I'm looking at Jesus Christ in the face, now I'm aware of everything I did when I kind of forgot about him for a second. That's what it means to answer for it. It's, it's not literally a test where it says, why did you do this? God knows why you did it. He knows yourself better than you know yourself. But to answer for it is to bring it to memory, to bring it to mind and say, I have to answer for this. Here, here's the pain and the hurt that it caused me. And what Paul is saying is, works don't merit justification. He's very clear about that. Only grace does. But you've got to answer for these. It's like the marriage vow. You take the vow, you're married. Now what? Now you act like it. Now you work out your marriage with fear and trembling, or you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a process. If you've died to sin, live like it. And when we talk about the believing loyalty and the fidelity, and that is really how you earn salvation, because you're trusting in the work that Jesus has done, not in anything you've done, the loyalty there, how do you, what's a demonstration of that loyalty? Well, how do you demonstrate loyalty to a spouse or to a friend? You act like it. What's the outward appearance of inward loyalty? It's virtuous acts. It's actually acting like you care about this stuff. It's actually acting like it matters to you. So the extreme thing that we're trying to reject is antinomianism. What is the other extreme? The other extreme is saying you've got to earn your salvation every step of the way. And there's probably no chance for you, so just be a nihilist. doesn't matter anyway. You're never going to be good enough. So, work. What? You perform good works under that. Yeah, yeah, and, and Paul is very clear, and the writer of Hebrews is clear, and even St. James, who we see works, faith without works is dead, he's not saying works earn your salvation. He's saying, what earns your salvation? Faith in Jesus Christ, and what accompanies faith? Works you got to act like you believe this thing. I mean, that really matters. And when we're judged at the end of time by what we have done, this is what we are, we are judged on. It's not a judgment of a scale, good works way outweighing the bad works, so good, you pass the test. No, it's saying, what about all this stuff? You claim to be loyal to Jesus, and, and you know God will judge our hearts, and He knows us better than we know ourselves. If we have been loyal to Him, even if we've made mistakes, we have nothing to fear, but... We carry those wounds with us. Um, purgatory is, a, is an antiseptic. It's a medicine. It's a process of being put in a hospital. Um, the church is a hospital here and now. That intermediate state is a hospital for our souls and life to the come. All aimed at the same purpose. Perfect health. Um, last thing I'll make. Confidence. When, when Hebrews says, let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Do you know where confidence comes from? That word? Close. Con is with. Yeah, con is with. So, but the, you got the second half right. With faithfulness. With faith, yeah. Fide, with faith. So where does our confidence? It's not arrogance. It's not presumption. We're not saying, yeah, I'm confident because I've got it. No, it's, it's with faith. Our confidence lies in the person of Jesus Christ. So all of our talk about judgment, all of the anxiety we may have, all goes away when we realize all you have to do is rely on Jesus Christ. And what is the natural result of that? Is we try to amend our life here and now. And our hope is that at the end of time, when we come face to face and are judged by what we have done, that we have, have confidence in that because Jesus Christ has covered it. And that we embrace the, the purification wholeheartedly because we are eager to unite ourselves to God forever, to be made perfect.
Any questions about any of this? It's a lot. There's a lot of um, nuanced questions that people can always find. You know, okay, well, what does this mean for this? What does this mean for this? But any any questions in our last couple minutes? I did. Need to project that confidence for others to believe in Jesus. We do. Yes. So, yeah. I, I think there's something to that. How often do we walk around um, insecure? Because, and, and here's where I think, and here's where I think it, it matters. And this is also, should be a wake-up call for us, that we're going to have to answer for what we've done. And I think, and, and maybe this is just me, I think sometimes our insecurity comes from, I don't want to tell this person I'm a Christian, because then when they see me do something bad, they're going to think I'm a hypocrite. But if, if they think I'm just a bad person and then they see me do something good, well, now they might think, oh, he's actually kind of a good person. But if I set the bar high, because Christians are supposed to be this, this, and this, even if it's just a cultural assumption, well, then I'm going to get judged by them. That's, that should be encouraging to us. That should be um, kind of spurring us on to, well, maybe you need your outward self to actually match what you're claiming to be. But also, what's the confidence in that? Yeah, I know. I mess up all the time, but my confidence doesn't lie in myself. It lies in Jesus Christ. But yes, that, that confidence, the proper confidence, not the arrogance, we should carry that with us. Um, and I think a natural emotion to attach to that is thankfulness. We are thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we are confident that, that it's His doing and not mine. Because thank God it doesn't rely on me. We'll close with the same prayer we opened with. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life, in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal, through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.